right, good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves at home. It's good to have you here. Good morning. It's a beautiful day outside. If you have a Bible or a device you're using, turn to Ephesians 2. It's going to be a great text for us today. It's a fascinating text. It's going to help us as we continue our series through the book of Ephesians. Um, our series called Coram Deo, which means face to face with God. It's where we live with God in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. And this is, this is a, a really fun text to preach. And so Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read it right through, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Paul to the church in Ephesus says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, now, most passages in the Bible, they'll have one overarching big idea. This is a pretty rich piece of, of Bible text. It's got a lot of big ideas in it, but I'd say the overall big idea is that the dead come to life because of God's gift to us. The dead are coming to alive, which is an interesting thing for us as mankind because we've always carried, as a people, a curiosity with seeing dead things find life in it. I mean, you could take objects, you could take things that are not living, pieces of creation. The idea that something that was not alive can become alive is fascinating. And we love doing things that will maybe put non-living things in such a way that they come right to life. So take ink, for instance. If you take ink, you can draw something called a cartoon and make it look like it's living. But if you put technology to that ink and maybe turn it into a pixel, well, you can make it do anything then. You can make a cartoon sing and dance. In fact, if you were to go all the way back to 1928, that's when Steamboat Willie was made, right? Steamboat Willie is actually the very, very first cartoon where there was sound added to it. I mean, this is actually the third or fourth cartoon with Mickey Mouse, but this is really the one where the world became acquainted with Mickey Mouse. Steamboat Willie, there was a whistling and a dancing mouse, but now, I mean, it's come a long way. We have a movie called Ready Player One, which is up for a slew, a slew of awards just for doing nothing more than elevating the whole idea of animation to a totally new level, right? I mean, they do a little bit more than just sing and dance now. Or you could take the robotics firm, 
Boston Dynamics, which is an interesting enterprise. It's actually an engineering and robotics firm that is spun off of MIT, and it works heavily with DARPA and the, really the greater Department of Defense. And it's interesting because every time they release a video of a robot prototype that they have built, it goes viral. I mean, I just challenge you to go to their website or go to YouTube and just watch one of those videos. You won't be able to do it because they have so many robots doing so many different things. And you watch it and you see this robot doing something like trail running or backflips or moving boxes. And it is just fascinating. I mean, look at that thing. Look at that thing. It's frightening to me. I listen, I grew up in the age of Terminator, right? So if Skynet ever turns on and these things start taking over the world, I've seen enough YouTube videos to say, go for the knees, right? Go for the knees. That's where they're the weakest. In fact, David Rhea is here, right? I think he builds these things, right? He's back there. He can barely hear me. I bet Dave knows how to kill these things too. So if they take over the world, we're all going to Dave Rhea's house. <laughs> See, it's not just ink and pixels. We have technology now that can take things that are not living and look like they've been imbued with life themselves. Why do you think mankind carries the quests for animation like we do? to animate dead things. Why do you think we want to make so many facsimiles of life? You know, a book that is far from a Christian book, but it is a fascinating book, is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, written when she was a teenager, considered one of the first horror stories ever written. It's generally a story about Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, taking expired parts in, doing what? Making them alive again, right? But that's what they try to answer in that book, if you read through the book, it's really just the question of why. Why would you ever take something dead and try to make it alive? In fact, if you read the book carefully, the monster, because he doesn't have a name in the book, the monster is actually more philosopher than he is animal, questioning his maker. Why would you create me to love? Why would you create me to, to act and to think? Why would you create me with the intention of me wanting to create things? It's in all of us. I think, I think this is the general answer to that book and the answer to why we carry such a quest for animation. I think it's imprinted on our soul to do so. I think it's imprinted on our soul as creators because we ourselves have been made by a creator and we are stamped in his image. We are made in the image of a creator. Therefore, we carry with us the idea and the impulse to create. I mean, just consider God scooping up just a mass of his own creation, non-living. I mean, a, a handful of carbon and calcium and phosphorus and sulfur and breathing into it just to see it physically animated right there. Because that's what happens. We were non-living components, and then we were animated, but not just animated, animated in the image of a bigger, better animator. And now we would sing and we would dance and do backflips and run trails, and we would even want to create we would even want to create. In fact, I think we take pleasure in seeing life and vitality come about when it was not possible. It's something we're attracted to. In fact, think about all the best stories that have ever been told. Right? The best stories that have ever been told, I think, are only good because there are elements of those stories that have come from other great stories that have been told. I don't think there's really anything new under the sun. I mean, I'm a big believer that all the stories, the best ones, have already been told, right? Consider the recipe of a good story. Whether it's a story you've been told, maybe it's your favorite story to tell, maybe it's your favorite movie, maybe it's your favorite book, it's going to have some key elements to it, right? 
It's going to have a suffering hero, maybe even an improbable hero. It's going to have danger. It's going to have something at stake, right? It's going to have mystery. It's going to have problem. It's going to have sin. It's going to have a pivot point somewhere in there, maybe a climax. I guess that's what we would call it, right? It's going to have an ending that's just a little bit better than the beginning, most typically. But best of all, in our favorite stories, we always see life coming from an improbable place against all odds. Against all odds. That's what forms the edges of a really good story. In fact, if you were to just take a a quick glance at the top 10 best grossing movies of all time, it's $17 billion of proof of what I'm saying. Because it's got the same ingredients to every single story. They just have a different context. You'll have the, uh, the suffering hero in space or on a sinking boat or around dinosaurs. I mean, it doesn't matter. You can mix and match whatever the context is. The ingredients don't change. Great stories resonate within us. Why? Because to a certain extent, we're written into them. Sort of. We're sort of written into them. I mean, no matter how you came into this room, what chapter of life you are in, no matter how you entered, you are in a story that is much larger than just you, much larger than just you. You're not the main character of your story. We think of ourselves as the main character, but we're not. We're a byline. We're further back in the development of the story, but it is a good story. It's the greatest one ever told. In fact, I would say it's the headwaters for every good story told since. It's the gospel. We're in a story of suffering with an improbable hero, a suffering hero who comes and sees life come to dead things against all odds, drawing us into an ending, a city that's a little bit better than where we started, a garden. It's the best story ever told. And it holds all the elements that draw up the stories and Photoshop and remix the stories that we're so attracted to today, right? I mean, the gospel is a good story. It is good news. It's the story of bad things becoming good and dead things becoming alive. We're such big believers in this, the fact that there's a story form, even to God's story, that if you look at our doctrinal statement online, our statement of beliefs, it is cast in story terms because that's how we see it unfolding. So let me ask you, Just a couple quick questions. Where are you in this story? Where is your story inside the grander story? I mean, if you were to tell somebody your story, your overall story with all of its pain and its trouble and its highs and its lows and your scars and your tears and your wins and your laughter, where does it fit inside of God's larger story? Do you have a hero who is made the bad news good for you, or are you still living in your horror story waiting for a hero? Where would you be? And when you tell your story to others, let's just say that you love Jesus, you tell your story, is that heroic rescue that frames your story, is it giving you new life to a place where it's obvious by your deeds, or is it kind of confusing and hard to see that? In fact, what I'd love to do is just go back and look at the text that we just read. We're going to go back and look at the same text because Paul actually sets the table for us really well, and he's going to define for us the beginning of our story. You see, in Ephesians, the first few verses of chapter 2, which we just read, actually talk about our story's past, the backside of our biography. And then the middle part talks about the climactic pivot, where everything starts to turn, and you can see that a sunnier day is coming. 
And then the end of the verse points to that little space in a beautiful story in between the pivot and the end, the upside of the story. We see it walked out for us. So let's go back and look in Ephesians 2. Again, it'll be up on the screen if you didn't bring anything with you. We're just going to read the first three verses again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If we were just to pause right there, we see another big truth. This big truth is a little bit different than the one we said earlier. And here in just those three verses, we see that the unbeliever is not just sick, but dead. Resuscitation is not what we need. It's resurrection. Medicine is not the goal. It's new life coming from what was dead. That is what we see. I think this is important because I've heard salvation taught in such a way by teachers or pastors. I've read it in a couple books. I've seen this metaphor used to explain how in salvation, God is partly responsible for your new life, but you're actually partly responsible too. And you have to be obedient. And your salvation depends on how obedient you are to choose God, right? The metaphor sounds a little bit like this. You're a sick person, laying on a bed, wallowing, dying, and you really can only be made well by one singular remedy, and it's an expensive one. So God, because he's just good, he comes as this great physician, sits on the edge of our bed, and then takes the medication, the one that will make you better, and puts it on the bedside table. Now, it's just up to you whether you want to get better or not. You could reach over and take the medication, you get new life, right? You're made well. Or you could just not reach out your hand or take it and you'll die. Very clean, very simple. I understand the metaphor. I remember hearing it for the first time thinking, that makes total sense. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a real bad sick person. Any bad sick people in here? I was telling Sam Emmons about this last week. I turned into a total toddler whenever I get sick, right? I'm the worst sick person in the world. My wife is so good to me. She is so sweet to me. She'll put out all the little things I need to take, nice glass of water, not too warm, not too cold. She puts it out. She makes sure the temperature is fine. All I have to do is get my clammy hand and extend it from the covers and take whatever she's put there, like within reach, and then take it, and I'll get better. And I act like it's the end of the world. I just won't do it. It's just too hard. Could you like... Just drop the pills in my mouth. I really need help right now. I mean, that's how I turn into. I turn into a total waste. <laughs> so I understand. I totally understand this metaphor, but it is very untrue. It's not how it works. We're not sick. We're dead. Anyone you know that is an unbeliever far from Christ is not a sick person. They're just in a state of decay. They're totally dead. And although it's true there is a singular remedy that will recover us, it's not sitting there waiting for us to com comply obediently. It's a situation where we come radically to new life and we realize God has already given us the remedy. And no, it wasn't just expensive, it cost him everything. You see, in the true story of the gospel, he is the hero, we did not help him out. We didn't, we didn't open the bottle up for him because it was just too tight for the great physician to open. We didn't choose to do that. He 
he didn't just fix us. He brought us from death. It's imp- so, see, it's important to remember, if you were here last week, that we already carry the tendency to carry a very high view of self and a very low view of God. It's something we're all tempted to do. And this is a perfect example of what I was saying. We actually sin in our hearts by demoting God to just being a simple resuscitator and not a resurrector. We demote God whenever we think that we are so awesome that we carried something beautiful to the table to complete what he couldn't complete. That sure he helped out, sure he brought the medicine, but we were actually awesome enough to take that medicine. So really we get some of the credit for that. We sin by taking God's involvement, his single-sided involvement, and we make it into some mutual transaction where we were part hero to compensate for his lack of heroism. We had to be part hero. You know, I think all we really contribute to the story is a big bucket of need. That's all we could really bring is need. We were dead. This version where we are laying sick in bed, that version is highly infused and influenced by the culture. That is where we get that line of thinking. Our culture does a really good job of conveying mankind as basically good and one that progresses in a noble direction from glory to glory, right? I mean, we have two different stories. We have God's story, which is a story where mankind is in decay and in desperate need of an intervening hero. But in the world story, we are the hero. We're the hero. We're not waiting on anyone, fixing our own problems. We're fixing our own problems, constantly evolving, progressing, and especially progressing past ancient nonsense like faith and religion. For instance, there's a bill right now that's cruising right through the California state legislature. Some of you read about it this week. AB 2943. It is going to make the sale of all goods and services regarding sexual orientation, change efforts, and unlawful business practice. This is what this means. This means that if you are a pastor, an author, a counselor, anyone selling a good or a service that will help somebody that is struggling with same-sex attraction, that is looking to be what we would call a biblical heterosexuality, if you are looking to do that, if you're looking to counsel someone in that direction, write a book in that direction, you will be breaking the law in the state of California. You will be breaking the law. This is what one of the assembly men who voted for that said. He said, the faith community, that's you by the way, the faith community, like anyone else, needs to evolve with the times. We're the hero, church. Get out of the way or keep pace. But you need to keep up with the times. This is culture's heavy voice. We're not dead. We don't need a rescue. We're progressing from glory to glory. We're evolving. We're the hero. I mean, if we put our mind to it, we just believe in ourselves, there's really nothing that we can't do and nothing that will stop us. Listen, that's hard to argue with, isn't it? Have you seen what mankind can do? It's pretty impressive what spiritually dead people can do and do even in the name of peace and love. Again, we were made in God's image. We were made in God's image. So we are not just creators, we are brilliant creators, even when we're spiritually dead. Even far from God, we can be influential activists. You've seen them, right? We could be compassionate humanitarians. We can make gobs and gobs of money and we can give it all away. And you could do all of that being very, very far from God. We can even build towers up to the heavens. 
Just look in Genesis. Look in Genesis 11. I'll just read one sentence. This is what God says as he looks at the Tower of Babel. And this is only the beginning, God says, of what they will do. This is only the beginning. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. But I will tell you one thing that is impossible. One thing the unbelieving world cannot do is animate their dead souls. They can't do that. Can't evolve into a place where you can do that. You could pretend to be the hero, but you need one. You're not one. And so for those who are spiritually dead, what these verses describe right here, really the only remaining motion left is to flow with the course of the world pursuing its values and being led by what this passage calls the prince of the power of the air, right? So listen, and just as a a sidebar, if you're a Christian and you're thinking of the people that this is talking about, those who are just flowing with the culture, chasing after the values and building new ones, like the assembly man that we just read about in that quote, probably made some of you really mad, right? I remember the first time I read it being really mad. Listen, just pray for them. What else are they going to do? They have no other option. Without the Holy Spirit changing their heart, what else are they going to do? It's the same thing I did before God rescued me. Don't be angry. Pray. Pray. They're following the prince of the power of the air, which confuses people, right? What exactly is that? It's something that is a biblical truth. It's Satan himself, the ancient dragon from the garden, he received the temporary freedom to lead a rebellion against God. We know this from various passages in the Bible. I'll only use a couple. First John 5, we see John saying, we know that we are from God, he says to the church. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, until it doesn't. But right now it does. And then we see Paul say to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, in their case, and that is those who are perishing, that's who he's talking about, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. You see, the spiritually dead, they have no other option but to be shaped by the values of the age and actually to be a part of shaping those same values and reinforcing them. Because Satan blinds them and he deceives I mean, he is the ancient dragon, but he has not stopped working, right? So these first three verses that we just looked at, it talks about nothing but total depravity. Nothing about just how we were, right? So before we move on, I want you to just behold your testimony. This was the beginning of your story. and How you were written into God's story. This is your preface, I guess you could say. Anyone in Christ, whether you're Four when you came to know Jesus, or you are 40. This is the beginning of your story. The horrors, the fears, the danger, all the attempts you made to fill your life, to chase down dreams, all the pain, the scars, the thing you've done, the things that were done to you, you were in fact dead. Just as the monster says in Frankenstein, I should have been your Adam, he says to his maker, but I am rather your fallen angel. Here's the truth. We were dead without animation, unanimated. And just as God breathed life into Adam and he became physically animated, now he breathes his spirit into people that become spiritually animated. Not just physically able to move and think and create, but spiritually alive and responsive to him. And this is where our story turns on a pivot. All good stories have a pivot or a climax where things stop looking as dark 
and they start looking more beautiful. And this is where it is for us. Like all good stories, we have this place where we go from total depravity to total salvation, right? Let's look at it in Ephesians 2.4. We're going to pick up where we left off. Very next verse. But God, that's the pivot, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is fascinating. So we see the pivot where he says that we were made alive. Made alive. Feeling responsive to the things that God is doing. This is the idea behind regeneration, which we teach from time to time. Regeneration is really a beautiful view of what God has done in mankind. It's not regeneration and having a regenerated heart is not like what you see in movies where someone has these paddles and they squirt the gel on it and they rub it and you just know someone's about to yell clear, right? Because I guess you're not supposed to be touching somebody when that happens. I don't know. But they yell clear, everybody stands back, and then they pop whoever's laying on the ground. That is not regeneration regeneration, right? That's resuscitation. Regeneration is where a dead heart is taken out and a new heart is put in. That's regeneration. That's totally different. And that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. When I was in school, I went through a class called Gross Anatomy where we got to dissect cadavers. And I remember spending a considerable amount of time on the human heart, which looks different than you think it would look. It feels different than you think it would feel, right? If you ever think about that, <laughs> it's different than what you thought about. But I remember one night working on this human heart, and I remember, and this was before I knew Jesus, and I remember thinking, this is wrong. I don't know this feels right. Like, ethically, I feel odd about this. And I remember it was storming outside and lightning and thunder. It felt like, a, like an old movie or something. And I remember this weird person that was working next to me. They were like my tank partner or something. I remember, I remember them saying, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if that thing just started beating again in your hands? <laughs> and I just didn't need that, you know? <laughs> but that would have been an easier thing to happen than for a dead soul to just come alive without the power of the Holy Spirit. It'd be easier. It'd be easier. You see, upon this surgery of regeneration, we are awakened to a place where finally, 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 and for the first time, able to see what we did to God and for the first time to see what he has done for us. In other words, we can see the blood on our hands and we can see the blood on our cross for the first time, right? That's regeneration. And what's cool about this is we also see that God has seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ where our citizenship really lies. And he actually, Paul talks about this a little bit later on, but what's interesting about this is what Jesus did physically happened to us spiritually. So when we see Jesus live, die, and then glorify to live again, in a better place, right? At the right hand of his Father, in a beautiful fellowship. Whenever we see that path, when it happened for Jesus physically, it happened for us immediately spiritually. That is where we are seated. That is where we reside. That is our true home. In other words, in some astonishing and mysterious way, when Jesus breaks out of this tomb 2,000 years ago, I got up with him. I don't understand it. But if you're a Christian, you did too. And so now that we're risen and we have new responsive animated hearts with a new citizenship, with all of that, what about this unique space between the pivot of a story and the end of a story? What about that? Let's look at Ephesians 2.7. We're going to finish our passage. Verse 7. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is how we walk out the rest of our story. Listen, this can be mildly misunderstood, the idea of faith. And I understand why. Because faith is a gift. We know that. But faith is also something that we execute. It's something that we, we have, something we bring. I bring faith to this moment. Or I have faith. And because it's something we, we feel like we're contributing to the whole formula, we feel like that if we get anything in return for that, that it was by merit, that we deserved it. So if we have salvation that comes because of faith that we have at the time, it just feels like we kind of earned it. Maybe we did crack open that bottle of medication. Maybe we did get that because we chose to do something. But even faith is a gift. Even faith is a gift. Your ability to even have faith is because he gave it to you. I want you to remember, you were dead. You can only see what God has done and what you have done because he has opened your eyes to see it. You did not respond that way because you had a dead heart. So even the faith that you have is a gift from God. So God gets total credit. I've gone a long way around to show you that God gets total credit. Grace is a gift. Favor of God towards you despite you. Mercy is a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It is not some cooperative collaboration where he brings a little bit to the table and we finish off the rest. Not. That's why Paul tells the church in Corinth, why, what, what do you have that wasn't given to you? And if it was given to you, why are you bragging as if you did something? So now we see we are free to live with new hearts and new expectations. New expectations on this story that we're in. Our story written into a bigger story. In fact, we're a workmanship, we see in this passage. A workmanship. That's a cool word. Workmanship. Not really a word we use today. But if you look at what built that word, the Greek for it, that's where we get our word poem today, or masterpiece, or piece of art. And that's just what we are. We're a poem. We're an animated poem. Our life is to be this poetic, animated, living masterpiece that doesn't just entertain people, but reflects the heart and the intentions of the creator. I mean, you can't read a poem without getting just a picture of the one who wrote the poem. When you watch a movie, you get just a glimpse of the heart of the people that made the movie. We can make judgment calls. We can make assessments on who somebody is by looking at their work. And here you and I, we are masterpieces, we are animated poems to do what? Reflect the thoughtfulness and the intentions and the character of the one that animated us, that created us. There's missional value in this. This is where our story comes alive before the eyes of a watching world. This is where that happens. This is why it says in Matthew 5, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So hear me. If you do not have a masterpiece, poetic, animated life reflecting your hero, reflecting the one that created you, can we just talk about faith for a minute? 
And whether you have it, whether you have it, this is a question worth asking. It's really a question we shouldn't be afraid of. A a thing we should be afraid of wrestling with. We should be okay with this. I think the church in general has a little bit of a fear, a timidity about judging what God has or has not done in the life of another person. I understand why, and I don't think all of it's bad. I think we fear that we will judge incorrectly, and it's true. You can never really see the hidden movement of what God's doing in someone's heart. Or maybe we fear that that's not our role to be judging who is alive and who is dead. And I get that too. That is not our role to be sitting in. I'm not the judge of the living and the dead. But we see God giving us not just an ability, but really a challenge, a mandate to look at those who say and wear the badge of those who are animated, those who are Christian, those who are living, those who are new, and speaking into whether there was an effective faith in their life or not. Let me explain what I mean. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 if you can. If you can't, we'll put it up on the the screen. This is Paul talking to another church. 1 Corinthians. Okay, I'm going to jump in in verse 10. 5 verse 10. I wrote to you, I'll go back to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to to you not to associate with anyone that bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is talking about a certain kind of judgment here, about how we assess those who wear the badge of Christian or believer. And yes, we need to be careful because we we can't know exactly what is going on and we can't spotlight exactly the movement that God is doing in that life. But because we can't know, doesn't mean we shouldn't wrestle with it or ask. Doesn't make it a bad question. Yes, be slow. Be humble. But if people claim Jesus and live according to the flow of the culture, I'm just going to say hard questions need to be asked. Hard questions need to be asked. And I think we know this. We know this. This is what we call church discipline. You can read about it in Matthew. It's just where the church, not meaning the pastors, but the church itself approaches somebody who is in unrepentant sin. So if you see somebody as a brother or sister in the Lord, you see somebody that's in a sin that's damaging them and those around them, and they're not repenting, you you have to make a distinction or a judgment to walk up and talk to them about it. That's not a moment where you say, well, I'm not to judge. I mean, I know I just saw him slap her, or I, I, I watched how she had that fifth glass of wine from Trader Joe's. She shouldn't have done that. You know, it's not, I shouldn't say anything, though, because I don't know what God is doing in their life. It, it, that's not what it's talking about. You're, you're to make a judgment call and go up and say, hey, I think you might have blown it there. Can we talk about that? And if they say, I don't think so. I think I'm cool to do that. Then the Bible says that you would go get somebody else and bring them. Or maybe go get a pastor and bring them. But if it keeps accelerating, then it goes before the church. If the church puts somebody out, which is the furthest reach of church discipline, if that happens, is that not the church making a distinction or a judgment? But yet as a church, we are called to do that. We are told to do that. 
And that's where the church would say your fruit shows a dead heart, not one that's alive. So you could come around. We'd love for you to come around. Come to a service, come to a calm group. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, we're going to throw a flag. That we don't endorse. Communion, probably not for you. That's something that we give for Christians. That's something that would be shut off to anyone else. The church would have to make that call. But our posture around them wouldn't be any different than any other unbeliever, your neighbors or our neighbors. We love them. Pray for them. Preach the gospel to them. Submit repentance to them. Pray. Pray for them. But Luke, how can we know, though? I mean, how can we know? One quick way is just to look at the fruit that they're leaving. You know, Matthew, we see in Matthew, Jesus do a good job of saying that thorn trees aren't dropping fruit all over the place and fruit trees don't have a lot of thorns all over them. He's being very obvious to say that you could tell just by the fruit around somebody what kind of tree they really, really are. We know this, but it scares us. But it scares us to think that. And and so I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to remind you that the fruit that we bear and the fruit that we are to look at and judge in our lives, it does not mean perfect performance. It doesn't mean that you've led 19 people to Jesus and are discipling them towards being a pastor. That's not perfect performance. That's not the fruit we're talking about, right? Because we saw last week, that's really no proof at all. Last week we saw that you could be doing mighty works of God and still have no face-to-face relationship with God. says the Bible. Right. Let's look at what 2 Peter says about the kind of fruit I'm talking about. 2 Peter 1, it'll be up on the screen. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Listen, this is an important, this is an important point here because I know a lot of people have a sensitive conscience and you see the trajectory of your life and you're asking yourself, am I saved? Like, am I a Christian? Like, I mean, gosh, look at, look at my life and I just got to ask. Friend, listen, if you're asking that question, because you feel like Jesus' work was not good enough to compensate for your bad work, then you need the gospel to come more alive in your heart where God grows and you shrink. You don't have a good grasp of the gospel. If you're asking that question, am I saved because your performance is really bad and you think that God looks at you and his approval rating goes up and down based on your performance and you don't have view of the gospel, you need to get it. The gospel is that God loves you and dumps his favor on you despite your performance because Jesus' performance was perfect. But if you're asking that question, am I saved because your life has no fruit, I think you should wrestle with that question. I think you should should tangle with it for a little while. I don't think that's a bad thing. Paul tells the Philippian church to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You might be just a slow grower. You might be stubborn. You might need to see the gospel more clearly. You might need that. You may be spiritually dead trying really hard to behave too. But here's the good news. If you're wrestling, the answer's the same. You apply the beauty and the truth of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus to your life. You apply the same truth, the same remedy. 
Jesus lived, died, and lived again and gave us his righteousness while removing our unrighteousness. And that was strong enough to do the job. We don't have to be heroic anymore. (laughs) He has the white hat. He is the rescuer. He is the hero. We can rest in that. If I were to look at your life right now, I'd be slow and careful to pose the question, are you saved? But I'm not going to say it's a bad question. It's not a defunct question. It's not something you shouldn't wrestle with, especially if you're not bearing fruit, especially if you're not. I'm mentioning all of this now because I think a majority of the people that we bump into in the city, a bunch of the people that we live and we work with will explain how they have faith in God, how they have faith in God, yet when you look at their life, no fruit, no fruit. They're not a poetic masterpiece that's showing the thoughtfulness and the intentions of a, of a better creator. They're living a song that's singing something very differently. I was there for a long time, almost a decade, living like that. I know what it feels like. I didn't point to God with some awakened heart. I didn't want to give up my idols. Come on. I didn't want a face-to-face relationship with God. I just went to church. I mean, I would tell you I was a Christian, and had you looked at my life, you wouldn't have said anything otherwise. I was well-behaved. I was polished. I said all the right things. I did all the right things. But had you asked the question, is he? wouldn't have been a bad question to ask. I needed to wrestle with it. So let me go back to the big idea. The big idea that Paul is trying to get across in this passage today is that we are not just a masterpiece, but an animated masterpiece, a workmanship And it's because of God's single-sided rescue of you and me that we are rescued into this life of works that were put before us, that we would be a masterpiece in those moments to reflect his goodness towards us. Here's the cool thing about your Bible. All of that, the last 33 and change minutes, was captured in two Greek sentences. That's how rich your Bible is, because we didn't even touch the surface, right? Two sentences. That's what it took Paul to say all of that. The first three verses talked about your biography's past. The middle few talked about the pivot and what God has done to change your story. And then the rest talk about that beautiful spot in between the pivot of God's goodness to you and the end where he captures his people together and brings us to a place prepared for us. So I'm going to just go back in application to the same questions I started with, and that is where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? cool story and where is your neighbor in this story and if you were to tell your story to your neighbor with all of its pain and horror and sadness if you were to give it to them how does it fit inside of God's larger story to them how do they see it how do they see what God has done can they see it with your life do they see that there's been a rescuer a real hero that has come or is that really hard to see And what are the works that are sitting before you now? Those ones that God has put before you since before the universe started. What are they? Because you know you are a masterpiece, an animated poem, that as you walk through those works, those things, those moments and those seasons, it is in such a way that you would reflect the thoughtfulness and the beauty of God before all that are watching, so that when people do look at the song that your life sings, they say, that is a good God. That is an incredible God. Because look at that life. What an amazing God. I'll give you an example and then we'll finish. John Newton, 
is one of my favorite characters in, I'll, I'll say church history, I'll use it loosely. John Newton, if you know anything about him, you probably already know where I'm going. He is the one that wrote Amazing Grace, but that's not what I know him most for, right? He was actually the captain of slave ships for many years. He worked for the Royal Navy. And he would murder, steal, torture, and sell human beings for a long time. That was the preface of his story, his biography. Until not, until God stopped that with a pivot, with the gospel that he came John Newton apologized at one time. He says, I apologize, but it's a confession which comes way too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. That was when he was a dead man walking. His heart hadn't been regenerated yet. He was physically animated, but not spiritually. But then God replaced his heart. God rescued him. God became the hero in his story, and then the pivot came and everything starts to change. We would see a different version of John Newton where he would savor this grace and write not just one song called Amazing Grace, but many songs and start churches and build disciples and then become one of the bigger forces in abolition in reversing what he used to make money off of. This is what he said towards the end of his life. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and indeficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I could heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Go ahead and stand with me. Because as we go to communion here in a moment, we have some cool things to consider. You know, communion itself, I mean, our hero's suffering in our story for the sake of the needy, which is us. He is our better workmanship and masterpiece. And that masterpiece was shattered for us that we would belong to him and become his masterpiece. And now, in this space between the climax of God's story and the end, here we are. And when we take communion, we get to remember our hero, and we get to take part in a body broken and a blood spilt in such a way that reflects his thoughtfulness for us. So listen, if you're in here and you're struggling with am I, just that really hard question. You're wrestling through it. Am I? Why are you? Why are you wrestling with that? Are you wrestling with your salvation because you don't believe the gospel is strong enough? Your life is just far too dirty? I would submit to you to get a better view of God. A better view of God. Are you saying that because your life has no fruit to it? There's zero fruit to your life. I would say you should wrestle with that. You should wrestle with that. When God touches a heart and puts a new feeling, responsive heart in, we cannot help but to change, even if it's slow change, even if it's stubborn change, but we can't help but to change. If you're happily in love with God and you have a quorum deo life, a face-to-face -face life with God, then you get an opportunity around the communion elements just to be thankful, to thank him for what he has done to your story. Listen, we can't, I mean, if that's the only thing we said in our prayers is thank you, would that not be enough? Because I remember my preface. 
and he rescued me. We have a great opportunity to pray. Consider our life, consider our fruit, consider that we're an artwork that reflects what Jesus has done for us. So Father, we thank you. And as we transition from this time into a time where we respond, and Lord, I know we'll respond in song, we'll respond in prayer, we'll respond in meditation, we'll respond in thinking, in communion, in fellowship, we'll write checks, we'll volunteer, we'll do all kinds of things to say to you, we love you and we are committed to you But Lord, in this sacred moment, in this sacred moment, I pray that you would send your spirit to wrestle with us. Wrestle in this very tender area. Am I? And what kind of animated poem do people see? And what does that mean? And Father, first of all, we just thank you for how beautiful you are and how thoughtful you are as you created us. We're amazed how you can make something dead come alive. We fake it here. You actually did it. And so we love you and we're excited about what you're building. We're thankful for how considerate you are and how noble and beautiful and strong. And yes, your gospel is big enough. Your love is strong and bold enough. Even though that we grow slow and we misbehave and we misperform, your son was perfect. And that righteousness that was given to us is perfect righteousness. And now, as we sing as your church, we do so as spiritual residents of a different place. We are seated in the heavenlies where our citizenship truly belongs. So we're thankful. You are so good to us. We are so thankful, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.